Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. We're live every Sunday from 10am, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. If you're watching on our website please leave us a google review and if you're watching via social media get involved in the chat below where you're watching us now email address if you'd like to send us some suggested topics is hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk and if you don't have time to watch us uh, on the whole show you can listen on the move on our podcast version of the show available on our website or from the main podcast platforms on the screen now uh, every monday from 10 a.m just search property matters tv also the show is now being broadcast on dilsey radio so we're welcoming their listeners there too uh, that's uh, the uh, update on everything about the show let's uh, talk to joe joshi about today's stories morning joe Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to all of our viewers and listeners, wherever you are. I mean, we are now covering quite a few spots, really. Uh, you can't avoid us. <laughs> I know. LinkedIn, Dilsey, you name it, we're covering it. So it's excellent. Yeah. Interesting story to start us off today and something that uh, I'm surprised we haven't talked about before, but it's been triggered, I suppose, as a discussion point by this opinion piece from a guy called Ian Barnett, who's the National Land Director of Leaders Romans Group, so a big player in the industry. He's written a thought piece which uh, he suggests that the creation of new settlements requires a long-term commitment and achieving it may require the relinquishing of political power. So the process, he says, from a local plan allocation to a digger on site typically stretches well beyond the four-year political term, and yet it is all too easily derailed or substantially delayed by short-term political thinking and parochial bias. This is demonstrated time and time again up and down the country. It's not long ago that Boris Johnson, he says, made a speech to the Conservative Party conference in which he said that he would not support greenfield development. And as then Prime Minister's comments uh, ricocheted around town halls up and down the country, many local plans were halted. The impasse occurred again when a few months later the planning bill was scrapped, again when Johnson was forced to stand down, then during the long process to select the next Prime Minister, and now with radical changes to strategic planning proposed, uh, uh, LPAs or local planning authorities are again halting progress on local plans. The latter is the result of a political rebellion fuelled by entrenched nimbyism, he says. Well, that's a word we've used plenty of times on this show, nimbyism, Joe. I do think he has a point, don't you? Yes, I think so. Um, it's interesting, actually, when you sort of uh, analyse it. But uh, first and foremost, obviously, uh, restricting the amount of um, growth um, when you have Greenbelt around you or uh, any areas that you can't build on, especially, um, you know, conservation areas. What happens there is that, um, obviously, the value of the properties are continue to maintain so um, because there is a, a limit to the supply and the demand is always very high um, when we have um, restricted uh, opportunities to build it just means that you've only got the areas that are currently available to build either you can go up down or perhaps to the side of the existings but not expand any further where the green belt sort of borders come into it um, I take his point on board where he says that, you know, um, it, it become, to be honest, it becomes a bit of a political football, doesn't it? Uh, when each um, uh, sort of sector of the government comes in or out or changes happen, they then start to look at what they can or they can't do uh, in order to perhaps um, win votes 
um, or even think about their strategy to try and develop more properties, provide more residential housing and so forth. And so, yes, I mean, it could be that it should be not used as a political football. Um, and perhaps then they would get some of these targets that they always set themselves uh, to be done. But, um, you know, it's the, the question is, you know, what is right and what is wrong here? He talks about uh, recording a conversation that he had uh, last summer in which a developer stated that they wouldn't buy strategic greenbelt land because of the Tory leadership contenders' positions on the greenbelt. I doubt they were more committed to greenbelt land, he says, uh, um, following Liz Truss's brief stint as PM and the government's stated objections to their Stalinist national housing targets, he says. And he actually makes the point that, it, it, ironically, uh, the 300,000 a year housing target was actually first made by Sir Winston Churchill, would you believe? So kind of ironic that they're calling their own policy a Stalinist national housing target. But it's interesting because they, they are looking to what the politicians are saying. And of course, those people who are developers are thinking 10 or 15 years ahead. So they're buying the land that they think they'll be able to develop further down the road when the current things they're working on are done. So they have to look ahead like this. And it must be quite difficult for them when every four years the goalposts seem to move. Yes, and then, and then you, you've invested in perhaps <clears throat> something that um, really isn't going to go into the plan. Uh, and the next uh, colour comes in or, or, or another prime minister comes in and has a different policy, a different view on that. Um, and, and they are really playing to the tune of perhaps their members or perhaps uh, some uh, old grandees of, of the party who say, we, you know, we live in this particular area and we don't want that to happen in our doorstep. And we've covered a story here before when, you know, we talked about the shortage of housing. And, you know, the local authority were prepared to give planning. But, of course, it was the neighbourhood in that area who all sort of got together and said, not under our noses, we're not going to have it. Yet, there's a massive cry from everybody every single day of the fact that there is not enough housing to be uh, put together. And I think that was going to be social housing. But the point is, it's any form of residential, whether it's social housing or private housing. Um, and because they're not making the targets. So it's not just about the governments, it's also about the people. I mean, the people that live around sometimes get together and say, well, actually, we don't, we don't want this to happen right here uh, because it's going to be tarnishing our area or we're going to have problems or we don't want you know, to overlook a new estate because at the moment our view is uninterrupted and it's beautiful over you know, pastures green, etc. So there's a whole um, bunch of things that actually which we don't actually you know give credit to because it's not always the planning authorities and it's not always you know the government or the council it actually could be the people that live around there too yeah he says exactly that actually in every case local politics including resident sentiment is at the root of the problem local residents resist development and the councillors that represent them fear an own goal scored by the notorious political football however as the cost of living he says and the lack of affordable places for many people to live either buying or renting worsens it is possible that we've reached a tipping point as the size of the demographic impacted by the cost of living crisis has increased giving a louder voice and influencing political decisions so he seems to think that there's now so many people that are either paying extortionate rents because there's just not enough houses or they can't buy their first property because there's none being built or hardly any being built that group of people are so disenfranchised that they will become more of a political fair bet than the NIMBYs interesting
Yes, I mean, as I said, it's, it's always about the tune and who's, who's playing it and who's the Pied Piper in this case, you know. And in some cases, it's the locals and in some cases, it's your, your voters. So that becomes a real, real difficult thing. But the question really here, I suppose, what one has to ask is, you know, what is the best plan here? What would be the alternative from, you know, the government, national government? And I think this chap talks about it going more perhaps local or, or uh, you know, in a, in a different body that actually has that um, to be able to deliver the um, development that is required. Again, whilst they may think about doing that, it's not something that I think the government in a, in a heartbeat, any of them are going to let go primarily because it is um, important for their um, voters and important for their election campaigns at that time. For example, they'll turn around and say, oh, yeah, we're not going to allow, you know, the green belt in this area. So the local councillors will turn around and say, we don't want to have that. And that's a win, a vote winning situation for their voters in that particular area. And, you know, every vote counts at that point. So it's important that they, they look at those, those aspects of it. But what is the answer? That's the question we have to ask. What is the answer? And I'm not sure that, you know, there is a, a single solution, though the chap you know we're talking about here says that it should be actually devolved and perhaps given to the local authorities and local people but then they'll i think the local people will be up in arms with their own residents yeah it's interesting isn't it because he talks about the fact that uh, democracy has had a role in planning since 1947 when the town and country planning act came into existence and uh, he said i'm not endorsing a US style system which is market led. I mean, we've all been to parts of the States where we've seen planning nightmares. It's the stuff of uh, literally nightmares when you go out to some of those parts of, uh, of the US. So he's not suggesting that, but what he is suggesting is exactly what you're saying, some kind of uh, independent structure. Un not unlike what the Germans and the Dutch have. They have, uh, Germany has a strategic planning department. Decisions are made through a series of regional plans at federal level. The Netherlands has a system more akin to a single national plan. Both countries are seen as having exemplary planning systems, which allows development to proceed largely unhampered by political interference. It is interesting, isn't it? Because you, you do sense with the way that things are at the moment, the frustration. I mean, how many um, uh, housing ministers have we had? 13, I think it is, in 12 years. I think the figure is something like that. You know, it clearly is not a priority, and yet they can't... It's just like kids have got a football and they won't let anyone else play with it and they put their arms around it and, and, and won't let anyone else have it. But I just detect, I feel a sense that actually... It would be great if we could just, it would be a vote winner rather, if they could actually say, you know, we're going to change all this nonsense, take the political stuff out of it. We just have an independent review body that's going to do this. It's going to be nothing to do with Labour. It's going to be nothing to do with any other colour. And let's just get out there and get these things built. Yes, as I said, I, I'm, I don't disagree with the sentiments of that. But again, the problem you're going to get and the reason why they're, they're not letting it go is, is because it is a... A vote winner for whoever comes it doesn't matter what your color is going to be blue or red or yellow or whatever the color is going to be they're just using it as a football in the meantime the whilst they go to the voters and say here we are this is what we're going to do or here we are this is what we're not going to do because you told us not to do it then we have the other underlying issue that we don't provide enough housing or we're not utilizing the lands more effectively in order to be able to provide the you know shortage of housing that is constant isn't it i mean i can't I mean, we've been doing this program now ourselves for probably coming on to three years give or take 
Um, and I don't know in that three years what advance they've made on any um, development. Doesn't matter who it is and what, where the suggestions have come from. You know, they, there's no no uh, strategy to build more properties, um, and they talk about it. I mean, even now the current prime minister is talking about it, but talking about it and doing it is a completely different thing. Mind you, we could all probably just get loads of barges, I suppose, and uh, just whack them on our shores. That would be probably one way of solutions. You're talking about the fact that um, the uh, current plans, um, the political handbrake is on development at the moment. Many local plans, says Ian, are currently stalled because of the thorny issue of nutrient neutrality. Do you know what that is, Joe? I had to look it up. No, I don't actually. You might Interesting. Well share it with me. I will share it with you. What is nutrient ne neutrality, says Google? Development achieves nutrient neutrality. God, it's not easy to say, is it? When the nutrient load created through additional wastewater, including surface water, from the development is mitigated. By designing development alongside suitable mitigation measures, additional nutrient loads can be avo often be avoided or mitigated. So it's basically proper drainage. That's what it is. Eco right. e ecological drainage, I would suggest. So apparently there's some problem with that, so they can't even build the plans that they've got at the moment. Which, So again, even then, red tape, if you, if you can get past the political bit and you can get past the NIMBYs, then you've got to get past the red tape. Is it worth even bothering? What's so impressive, really, when I, when I, when I listen to things like that, is that you know, we have had and, and still have got the infrastructure of a HS2 going across the country and irrespective of all the arguments, somehow there's no issue about drainage water, there's no issue about piling, there's no issue about any of those. They're, they're building the railway right across the country as they did amazingly with the Elizabeth line, which is happening pretty much uninterrupted while the world was going up above, right underneath us, and they created that. And then when it comes to housing, we have a completely different policy, a different view um, in, in terms of structure. So, for example, the drainage or building a property next to a waterway or a stream or any of those things that it causes issues or they, they decide that it's going to cause, cause a bigger problem. I wonder if that's more of an insurance issue rather than the building issue, really. Um, but uh, anyway, that's something that is worth, worth pursuing and looking into. But it's interesting that, you know, there's, there's a problem for one, but not a problem for another. He says the, in the UK, the closest they ever got to uh, a model such as the German or the Dutch one was the regional spatial strategies, which I'm sure we all remember. Um, they're called the RSSs, and they were established to, uh, a, to get a spatial vision and strategy-specific uh, uh, plan for a region, for example, including the identification of areas for development with a 20-year timescale, while also providing direction for local development frameworks on a local borough or district level. The RSS has provided a cohesive approach to housing targets and transport planning and regionally specific policies in a way which is so problematic within the two-tier system. Even then, though, he says, politics hampered the process. They were never given enough time to crystallise their plans and were ultimately withdrawn before they had a chance to come to fruition. So even when they do let go of the tentacles a little bit, they still pull it back in at the last minute because they get nervous, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, there's always somebody somewhere who's going to raise that question, isn't it? I mean, it's like planning when you go to planning in a local town. You put your planning application in, you go through the whole... Pro I mean, the, the process in some cases can be anything between two and four years for, for a development site. 
Um, and it's just the changes in that and everyone comes up with a different uh, idea, a different plan. And it's always a matter of their opinion that makes the differences. And planning officers come in and they say that doesn't fit within this size, or this doesn't work with this way. And before you know it, it's just time that drags on. And, you know, in, in a, an application and in cost size, that's huge. When you look at you're holding a land and, and, and keep going back to the planners for their view and stamp. I mean, they're just all the people just like we are. They probably in their heart heart believe it's the right thing to do, but they're governed by somebody else who says it's the wrong thing to do and, and a committee of people that actually, so it's, it's a vote or, a, or, a, or a, a thing run by committee as opposed to run by an individual. If you remember, we did have the new market towns announced a few years ago and uh, presumably the development is going on on those. But he says, as the new towns programme shows, when planning works, it's always top down rather than bottom up. Ideally, a national spatial plan is required to kickstart development and properly plan for development that this country needs. Community involvement would have a role to play within this national approach, but the engagement process must be efficient. He says his three rounds of consultation on design code alone really the best route to fast-tracking development, and it must be consistent across the country. So he's basically saying what we need is somebody to stand up and say, right, this is what's going to happen, let's get on with it and stop this blimmin' arguing. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? But then it, when you have a change every three or four years at the top, then somebody else comes along, and if it hasn't been agreed by one step, then the next one comes and says, no, I, I don't agree with it, I'll change it. It's a bit like... Um, Heathrow runway, you know, runway three has been, you know, on and off, on and off, on and off for what? And they bought loads and loads of properties, loads of land, loads of things, and then Boris turned around and said, I'm not going to allow it. And somebody will come along and say, well, they need it. I mean, it probably never happened, but they actually did spend a lot of money buying a lot of properties uh, around Heathrow just because they wanted to have a, a, a landing three, you know, a runway three. But each time it got to somewhere close between, you know, the residents of the area the political football, the local councils, it just never got. But look at the amount of time and money. I mean, we've all watched it, seen it and, and demonstrated on it, you know, when he's sort of lying on, on the runway to say that, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to happen. Well, you know, there you are. It's all those people that have invested their money and time into something that actually then doesn't get done, um, whether it's top to bottom or even from bottom to up. I mean, bottom to up is people like me and you sort of saying, well, I'd like to do that and it takes us forever to get there. But you could have someone like a prime minister who says, you know what, we could turn around and do this. And the next day he's out. And then another one comes in and says, no, we're not going to do it. It's exactly what's happened here. Mm, yeah. He talks about neighbourhoods and demographics having an impact on planning as well. So he makes the point that in a, um, a higher income earning bracket or a higher house price bracket, should we say, the communities there are more professional, prosperous, and they know how to manipulate the system, work the system, if you like, or even invest in lawyers to protect what their communities are. Whereas in a lower demographic, you've got more transient neighbourhoods, you've got more um, uh, immigration, you've got people who probably don't have an interest in their neighbourhood in that same way in protecting it. Um, they're just there because they're passing through in life. And again, the young people uh, you know, who maybe not have a, 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 an interest in that because they're trying to build their careers, etc. So you can even also get a demographic issue whereby people want to protect the neighbourhood, they're prepared to invest their own money in getting lawyers to do that, and therefore building in some of those areas is very, very difficult, whereas others it's easier. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, when you've got, um, 
let's take university towns hypothetically you know university towns will have people just passing through because you know the children are there on, uh, at that university for a period of let's say you know two years maybe three whatever their process is going to be um, and then move on and another set comes in and every time there's a new set that come in they're not going to stay there they're not they're going to move some might a small fraction might end up getting a job in the local area but most people will move on and and so that then you can't have those people then saying well actually we'd like this because it doesn't really make any difference to them on the other hand you know you we, we've had stories where people are bought in towns where the town don't want them to buy because they can't afford to buy themselves then you know holiday homes etc those people then have a say of what they want to do so wherever you live whatever in in, in how the town's going to look um but you may not be somebody who actually sits there and deals with it it's the ones the few that are always going to be there that are going to deal with it the rest are just going to be passing through and that is happening more and more isn't it paul when you think back over just covid look how quickly people started to shift this way and that way and so forth i mean there's a huge surge of people going and then there's a huge surge of people going back because it doesn't it didn't fit for them you couldn't get those people to say well actually that was right for them yes we all you know legged it out probably for the race for space as we called it you know we want more air more space more etc and yet then you can't say well actually i want to now build in the garden because you know i come here all the way away from the cities to have the race for space i don't want to have a development in the back of my garden you know so it is it is a problem case yeah, he says that uh, he thinks that the political goal of levelling up really does need a long-term plan in place. And the only way that you can do that is to relinquish uh, political power on that situation uh, to achieve real success. So he said that any politician that really wants to believe and give a legacy of levelling up, they have to say, right, we're going to put a long-term plan in place which is agreed by all parties. It's a, a, a complete um, uh, agreed across the House policy that's going to last the next 20 years and that is the legacy that they could leave and, and be proud of when they retire. It's an interesting point but I can't see it yeah. happening, it's not practical is it? No it's not, it's not I mean you know, going back I think uh, 70s, you know, sort of late 70s, uh, they had the policy for what was the five new towns that they called at the time you know, uh, we called it roundabout cities but they called it new towns and that's places like Bracknell and um, Milton Keynes and so forth that were, you know, identified as um, the new uh, homes. Now, okay, they're established and people are, you know, it's blended in. But at the time, it was it was quite a, a big challenge to say, look, you know, I think um, Basildon, um, there, there was two others, three others, uh, I think um, Stevenage or something like that, where all the areas were which were like classified as new towns, um, and they're being successful and maybe maybe they should consider something like that in, and identify the patches that can link it together um, and then build the housing and, and communities in those particular areas in, in ways that people are happy to have and have the space as well but I think the way everything is going at the moment with loads and loads of flats and the next generation not really interested in gardening um, then, you know, it is overbuilt and, and that's what's throwing the policies out because they think it's, you know, too much uh, height, too much mass uh, in an area and it just becomes and starts to look like a ghetto. So, it, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point. 
Um, but I'm not sure it's one that's going to be solved just yet. Mm. Let's move on to our second story. Do estate agents have an obligation to find out whether the reason a vendor is selling their property is due to a divorce or a partnership split? Increasingly popular these days, I would imagine. According to Paul Offley, who's the compliance officer at the Guild of Property Professionals, the answer to the question depends on whether this could ultimately impact the transaction and potentially cause delays. It goes without saying that agents are required to do their due diligence and find out who the owners are um, uh, are consenting to sell the property but does the reason behind the sale matter if if it does if the reason could have an impact on the buyer's decision to purchase the property he adds that uh, there have been instances where a sale has been agreed and solicitors have been instructed but it came to light that the sellers were going through a divorce and the financial agreement between the sellers had not been finalized as a result the sale was delayed and the buyer was unable to move on the date they wanted to the buyer claimed that they were unable to wait that length of time it would take to get the agreement finalized and if they had known at the start it would have been potentially protracted sale they would not have proceeded as a result they wanted to withdraw from the transaction and were seeking to cover the costs which they had incurred in terms of mortgage application solicitors and survey costs is it a reasonable claim joe that's what the question is i suppose the answer to that question immediately i i don't think it's a reasonable claim however um i think that um you know agents should obviously get authority from both parties. Sometimes, I mean, you know, I've been an agent for many years of my life and we go to a property um, and, you know, you might be invited by one of the partners who are separating to actually talk about the property. Originally, it's always about getting um, the appraisals of what they think they're worth. So each partner may have invited three different estate agents into the house uh, or, the, or the property and ask for their opinion as to what they feel that they would sell it for and what they would ultimately get in order to find an average. But when you are instructed, um, you know, then you've got to turn around and get a signature on the um, agency agreement, the authority for them to give you the authority to sell from both parties. And sometimes agents are, you know, keen to get the instruction and will go with perhaps the one party only to find that the other party has actually never authorized it and probably will never authorize it down the line so due diligence at the outset is really important not just for the customer that's selling it not just for the potential buyer that may buy it but also for the agent because the agent is going to spend a lot of time energy money advertising and marketing something uh, which ultimately they're not really going to sell and they're actually probably not going to get paid for because they operate on a no-sell, no-fee basis. So, you know, they're actually probably kidding themselves. So it is important for them to actually get an authority, a written authority. And it may be that it's done individually. Maybe it's an acrimonious partnership that is going wrong. They don't want to see the sight of each other. I've had that. I've been in a room where I've had to literally stand in the middle of two people back to back because they just can't stand the sight of each other. Um, um, and, and agree that again, get it agreed to actually sign the documents and say, right, now you're authorized to go and get, a, get on with it. Um, in terms of the, uh, the financial settlement, that is, you know, that's an Achilles heel, isn't it? Nobody knows that. I mean, they're not going to tell you that at that point. And it might be that they have agreed something and it then becomes a disagreement. And that disagreement could have had in the, happened in the journey of a sale. We might have arranged a sale um all beings agreed by both parties 
Um, and, and of course, you go on, you go, you know, soldiering on towards getting a sale agreed and finished off. And then they fall out between themselves. They're not going to phone you up and say to you, oh, by the way, we fell out and therefore we're not going to do this. They're trying to, you know, negotiate themselves in the background at the same time as the buyer is spending their time, money and energy and their solicitor's cost on, you know, saying that. I've always felt, you know, that time has come along when if a sale has been agreed, that there should be, you know, a level of money, i.e. maybe a thousand pounds as a, a gesture of goodwill that should be put into, you know, an escrow account from both parties. And when the one party fails to actually comply, at least the other's costs are covered because they should know that they've actually not delivered something. So the other person would get that benefit. So at least there's something towards the basic costs of, of, and the troubles that they've got. I mean, it's not a lot, but what it does do is actions speak louder than words. It does get them committed. And I always think that if someone has no skin in the game, if they don't actually, you know, want to commit to something like that, then then there is a, an issue that could be pending and you need to watch. And that's down to good estate agency to understand that you could actually, you know, continue to monitor this and find out where it is. Is there a claim on it? It's, it's ambiguous, isn't it? I mean, it could be one of the other reasons. I mean, it could be that they, you know, the, the, the seller could turn around and say, well, actually, we've been waiting for the buyer, but the buyer survey wasn't done in time. Um, and so our circumstances have changed. It could be a whole bunch of things. It's quite, quite, but it is very much up to the agent. If he wants to get paid, then he needs to make sure that he's policing the whole transaction from start to finish. I guess it's that second question. You know, if he finds out they're getting divorced, the, the, the second question should always be, where are you in that process, I guess? But Offley says, interestingly, that the terms of the Consumer Protection Act um, on the Unfair Trading Regulations 2008 says the consumer would need to demonstrate that there was a piece of information missing which would have materially impacted their decision to go with that transaction. At the end of the day, only a court would be able to decide whether the claim would be successful or not. But it just goes to prove that more and more people are using this legislation to try and recover costs or make a claim against the agent. They say that the things that agents can do to stop this happening is part of your anti-money laundering assessment. You need to ask the risk of that transaction. You need to assess the risk of that transaction. And one of the things they would look at is the reason for the property being sold. If the agent knows the property is being sold because of a deal of all and partnership split, then it is worth taking that a step further and establishing whether there is anything they could, that could possibly result in the delay to the transaction. It won't necessarily help with the AML, but it will help agents avoid CPR claims. Yeah, I th as I said, look, we, we, we are now living in what we call a claim society. It's come over from the United States. You know, over there, if you sneeze, you can actually, you know, claim a, a thing because somebody sneezed on somebody else and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, we, we're becoming a claim society. But it, I, I think the, you know, agents just need to make sure that when they put something on the market, they have a full picture of, of what's going on um, and also to continue to monitor it. The problem we have is, you know, the enthusiasm of getting a sale. So if you've taken an instruction on, and you've actually got a buyer that wants to buy it, you know, that that enthusiasm kind of um, forgets all the other underneath, under, underlining issues that have got to be dealt with because you just got the sale together and you put it together. And sometimes the sale's put together on a pure basis that it's a sale. 
um, and, and an agent could be excited that they actually managed to get this deal over the line. But deal over the line isn't a deal over the line until it actually exchanges contracts. You know, it's still open uh, for any kind of abuse all the way through that system. So it's quite important for the agent to monitor it because nobody else is going to do it. You know, the buyer's not going to phone the seller and the seller's not going to phone the buyer um, and, and, and probably tell the truth. Um, so it's up to the agent to do that and hold this or hold the hand of both the buyer and seller throughout the whole transaction if they're going to get paid at the end of it. Is it something that you would suggest an agent do to sort of try and manage expectations in the sense of, OK, what are the time scales? What, how quickly are you looking to get into this or get out of this property? Yes, or I mean, get involved you know, in that? No, I think, look, at the end of the day, if they're going to get paid, they've got, they got to be an integral part of, of the whole thing. And this is something that we were always part of when we started the business uh, in, in the 80s. We used to follow the chain. It was quite tedious. You know, in the back of our sheet, we would have the who the next buyer was, even their solicitor, who their mortgage broker was. We would have the whole chapter and verse of the chain all the way down the line to, to the last person and continue to talk to, and also the agent that was selling the property. So we all had a communication thing. But, you know, in came the uh, emails and in came um, WhatsApps and text messages and all sorts of other things. And... So we forgot to bother to write it down and we don't bother doing spreadsheets. We just message somebody quickly or drop them an email and say, oh, what's you know, Paul's situation this week? Is he, is he in or is he out? Is he gone away? Is he coming back? Has he got his service? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, no problem. That's great. Thank you very much. That didn't tell you anything. It's a bit like phoning a solicitor on a Friday morning and asking what the weather is. It's, you know, they're just going to put the phone down on you. You've got to go. You've got to have a reason behind the whole. And that's how a state agency was done and should be done but we have now come to this stage where you know technology has allowed people to hide behind what is the reality um and so they don't pick up the phone they don't ask the question they don't go through the chain and so forth and i you know i had a recent scenario uh from a client that um uh, you know was referred to me who has the property in a chain um and the chain at the bottom end has fallen out um, and there were eight people in the chain. So I, asked, I simply asked the question. So, you know, what, what would you, what would you like? What would, you know, what do you know about your chain? And he said, well, actually I don't. I said, well, did your estate agent not actually ask you or, or, or tell you the position of the buyer? He said, well, they had their survey done. And as far as that's concerned, I think that was all right. Um, and so what about the rest of it? I'm not really sure. Um, so I said, well, who are they selling to? I don't, I don't know. I said, so do we know where the first time buyer lives? Actually, no, I don't. I said, so maybe it could be that you might, the first time buyer sometime could be around the corner. So you're selling at a property at a certain level, you know, you might want to maybe consider buying that first time buyer property and, and breaking the chain and so everybody can move. Oh, never thought of that. Why did my state agent not think of that? And why didn't he suggest that? And so forth. And that's what I'm trying to say that you know, you, it, this is an entrepreneurial business and you've got to be in it properly. But unfortunately, the modern technology does take over. People just think, oh, I sent them an email yesterday. I haven't had a response. Okay, mm, well, Gets what, you off the hook, up, doesn't it? Yeah. What, what about picking up the phone and asking the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
Well, Joe, time's beaten us as always, as it does on a Sunday. So thank you very much indeed for your comments on our stories today. Hope that was an interesting episode of uh, Property Matters. We'll see you next time.